Well, now, we have spent the last three weeks learning about what the Bible says concerning the very relevant issue of forgiveness. And we have discovered that really the subject is not merely as simplistic as we may have thought forgiveness was before we started. We learned, for instance, that there is a difference between transactional forgiveness and attitudinal forgiveness. And we also discovered that there's a difference between personal forgiveness and institutional forgiveness. And the really beautiful thing is that whenever sin is addressed the way God has prescribed, the outcome is so much better than when we dress it according to our own whims or according to the latest psychological theories that come along. God, as always, has given us everything we need to address sin in our own lives and in the lives of those who are closest to us. And that's why we come week after week, and that's why we approach day after day the Word of God, because He still speaks, He still lives, and He's still moving with power and authority in our lives. And so we've learned about forgiveness. We've learned how to purify our hearts. We've learned how to address sin in those we love and to do it in a biblical way. We've learned how do we respond when a person does not respond themselves in a biblical way when we address sin in their hearts, whether it be our children or whether it be a wife or a husband or a loved one, a father or a mother. And we've learned these things from the Word of God, but we know that there is still danger here. There's still danger here. There is the danger that even though we commit to addressing sin in God's way, we may find ourselves struggling with a bitter spirit that just won't let the offense die. Even after we've addressed it the way God wants us to, well, somehow we keep it alive. Whenever we think of the person who offended us or harmed us, a fire is kindled in our hearts and we begin to relish some future opportunity to give that person what he really deserves. And that's the danger. We've all had our bouts with bitterness. And perhaps that's because there's something about it that is so delicious and appealing to our sinful hearts. Frederick Buchner once said, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. And to lick our wounds, to smack our lips over grievances long past, to roll over our tongues the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton or carcass at the feast is you. We've all been there. We've all been there, and there is something about it that gives a momentary pleasure. But in the end, as Solomon told us in Proverbs, the end is death. Bitterness is a cancer that kills from the inside out. It starts deep in the heart and it begins burning like a dugout canoe. You put a little fire on it and you chip away. You put a little more fire on it and you chip away. And before long, you've hollowed the whole thing out. 
And that's what bitterness does to our souls. It chips away at your walk with the Spirit. It sours your attitude toward life. It damages all your relationships, even with people who knew nothing of the offense. Your relationship with them is even harmed. But most of all, it disrupts our relationship with God. It disrupts our relationship with God. So how do we address bitterness when we begin to feel it burning in our hearts? How do we address it? This morning, I want to offer three suggestions for dealing with bitterness in our hearts. Three ways to quench the fire of bitterness or three remedies for a bitter spirit. Number one, by the way, this assumes that when you begin feeling bitterness rising in your heart, you actually want to do something about it. That's really the first step. When you begin feeling the fire of bitterness, do you want to please God in that moment and deal with that issue? That's really where it all begins. But assuming that you have that desire, assuming that you want to honor God in the way that you handle these feelings in your heart, what is the first thing you do? Well, the number one thing you do, the very first step to this is confess your bitterness as sin. Confess your bitterness as sin. Now, there are many ways that our culture would counsel us to address feelings of bitterness. Some would tell us to visit a counselor and pour out all our hurtful feelings on him. Counselors actually encourage this. Come to my office and just unload on me. Pretend I'm your father who abused you. Pretend I'm that co-worker or that friend who betrayed you. Just act as if I'm that person and vent all your feelings. I can take it. And it'll be good for you. That way you can express what you really feel. And nobody gets hurt. But that's not how God would have us address it. It's not, for the, not good for the person who does that. And it's inappropriate for the counselor who suggests it. Now others would say that the best way to deal with your bitter feelings is just to go to the person who offended you and let them have it. I mean, go ahead, tell them how you really feel. Don't hold back. Get it off your chest. It'll be therapeutic and it will be good for your relationship in the long term. I mean, after all, you need to kind of know where you stand. You need to set up your boundaries. But that's not only unbiblical, it's a recipe for disaster. People who live like that, let me tell you a secret. People who live like that, they don't have any friends. They can't keep friends. Because they're constantly getting their ideas off their chest. They're constantly expressing. Can I tell you something that may be helpful for us to understand? It's not always appropriate to say what you're feeling. It's not always appropriate to express what's in your heart. Because the Word of God tells us what's in our heart, right? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Don't express that thing. Don't squeeze it so something comes out because whatever comes out is going to be bad. One Christian author in a book entitled When God Doesn't Make Sense writes this. Here's a third suggestion for how to deal with bitterness. He writes, there is only one cure for the cancer of bitterness. That is to forgive the perceived offender once and for all with God's help. 
As strange as it may seem, he writes, I'm suggesting that some of us need to forgive God for those heartaches that are charged to his account. You've carried resentment against him for years. Now it's time to let it go. Forgive God. You know, I'm almost even afraid to say that from this pulpit. Forgive God? The the author goes on, God is in the business of forgiving us, and it almost sounds blasphemous to suggest that the relationship could be reversed. God has done no wrong and does not need our approbation, but the source of the bitterness must be admitted before it can be cleansed. There is no better way to get rid of it than to absolve the Lord of whatever we have harbored And then to ask his forgiveness for our lack of faith. It's called reconciliation, and it is the only way you will ever be free. Forgive God. Well, beloved, that doesn't just sound blasphemous. That is blasphemous. And I suspect it's largely owing to the goal of making a person feel better, making his inner conscience feel less guilty rather than reconciling with God. Listen, if there is bitterness against God for some tragedy, the way to defeat that bitterness is to confess it as sin, not blame God. It's sin. And dealing with that sin means, first of all, we confess it for what it is. It's amazing in the counseling office, a lot of times, if you can just get a believer to confess that the issue he's dealing with is a sin issue, that realization and and embracing that truth is sometimes all they need. Because all they've done before then is justify it. All they've done leading up to that is give excuses for it. But once they understand what it is and they say what God says about that issue, that's what confession is, it's over. You don't need any more counseling. You need repentance. And once it is confessed appropriately, repentance sometimes comes very easily. And so we should confess it as sin because that's really the issue. God's word never makes allowances for a bitter spirit. To the contrary, bitterness is consistently portrayed as sin. Now let's look at a few scriptures together. Matthew 5, 43. You're familiar with this passage because this is from Jesus' very first sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 43. Jesus says these words. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and what? Hate your enemy. But I, that's Jesus, says to you, say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so what do we see here? Well, here we see Jesus defining What we would call bitterness, he defines it as hatred. You want to know what bitterness is? It's really hatred. It's really hatred in our hearts against a brother or a sister. Really, they are one and the same, bitterness and hatred. Bitterness is the polar opposite of love. It is the bitter, it is the polar opposite of forgiveness 
It's hatred. And then look at Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. The apostle addresses bitterness directly. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. The Apostle Paul writes these words, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You see, bitterness is not only the polar opposite of love, it is the polar opposite of attitudinal forgiveness. It is the polar opposite of forgiveness from the heart. It is the fruit of an unforgiving heart. If you're bitter, it's because you haven't forgiven. And so it's the opposite of love and it's the opposite of forgiveness. And turn with me also to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Here, the author of Hebrews writes these words, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up causing trouble, and by it many be defiled. I tell you, beloved, there's no more effective way to destroy a relationship, a family, or a church than by a root of bitterness that grows below ground level where no one can see it, but where the damage is devastating and often permanent. This is why whenever we have someone go through the membership process, and we have a few going through it right now, the very last thing that the elders talk to them about is, is this. If you ever have a problem with something the leadership has done, or if one of the elders offends you personally, the appropriate way to handle that, according to the Word of God, is to come to us personally. Don't go to your friend in the body. You can talk to your wife about it. She might set you straight. But you don't go to a friend. Let's not have teams here. Let's deal with these things biblically. And we'll do the same with you. Why? Because if a root of bitterness is allowed to grow in your family or in your church, it will eventually destroy it. It will destroy it. Is bitterness sin? You better believe it. And at its root is a lack of true biblical love and true biblical forgiveness. Puritan pastor Thomas Watson wrote these words, We are not bound to trust an enemy, but we are bound to forgive him. And then he asks, when do we forgive others? When we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do harm to our enemies, but wish well of them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. That's when we have forgiven And if we're not willing to forgive, bitterness will always be just outside the door. Bitterness will always be hanging over our heads, ready to drop on us at the least provocation. You see, beloved, the first thing to do when we feel the fires of bitterness flaring up in our spirit is to drop to our knees and to confess it as sin. I had this very... Um, it's amazing whenever my wife and I uh, talk about this frequently, whenever I'm preaching on an issue, and usually I don't preach topically, we preach expositorily going through a book. We've been looking at some topics here recently, but it's amazing whenever the Lord leads us into a 
a topic in the Word of God, a subject for us to discuss together. It's usually that subject where we are most profoundly tempted during that period of time. Whereas it may be that when you're dealing with the issue, for instance, of forgiveness, you find that people who don't normally quarrel are tempted to fight with each other. And when you're dealing with the issue of bitterness and studying that in the Word of God, it seems like either the flesh or the devil or something comes along and throws that at you as a temptation. I was talking to a brother the other day on the phone, and he said some things that really, as I look back on them now, they were fine, and there shouldn't have been a problem. But you know, something happened between the time we talked on the phone and the next morning when I woke up. And when I woke up, I was kind of mad at him. It wasn't anybody here, so don't worry about it. Don't come to me afterwards and say, was it me? Was it me? (laughs) No, it wasn't you. It was somebody outside the church. But after we got done talking, I I, I really didn't think about it. I didn't think I was thinking about it until the next morning I woke up and I felt my spirit was really troubled. And I found myself mulling over what this guy had said and adding interpretation to what he had said. What he really meant was... And I can detect certain motives and certain feelings there. He's really hostile to me. He's not. This brother loves me dearly. I think. (laughs) Just kidding. And I was wrestling with that, and it occurred to me, why, why am I wrestling with this? This brother's never done anything in our whole friendship to ever get crossways with me. Why am I struggling with this? And I realized, I'm being tempted Right now, I am being tempted to sin and had sinned with my mind. And I sat there in in front of my desk and went before the throne of grace and said, Lord, this brother hasn't done anything wrong to me. I'm being tempted to sin. I'm being tempted to become bitter at him. And you know what? It was gone. You identify it the way God identifies it, and at least for the moment. And you may be tempted again, especially if it was a real offense. You're liable to be tempted with this frequently. But when you recognize that it really is temptation, it's a temptation. This is not uh, an opportunity for you to play lawyer with the word of God and present the defense before God and to indulge in this kind of legal activity, trying to remind the judge who is right and who is wrong and what you're going to say next time you have opportunity to cross-examine or to give testimony. It's none of that. It's just sin. And it needs to be repented of. I tell you, if we deal with it properly at this first step, the rest of the steps may not even come into play. It may not even be necessary. And so I found this true in my life as well. When I confess it as sin with a broken and tender heart before God, it's like throwing a huge barrel of water on the fire of bitterness. And then I find myself not wanting revenge, but desiring to pray for that person's salvation and blessing and encouragement instead. God's word is always better. His way is always best. And so the first thing we do when we feel the fires of bitterness growing in our hearts, we confess it as sin. But there's another thing we should do. If you're still struggling with it after you confessed it as sin, do this. Number two, recall how much God has forgiven you. 
recall how much God has forgiven you. The second thing to do when we begin to feel bitterness rising within is to remind ourselves how much we have been forgiven. Luke 7, 47, Jesus says, those who have been forgiven much love much. Those who have been forgiven much love much. That's true not only in our relationship with Christ, but in our relationships with one another as well. I think the number one culprit of pride and self-righteousness in our lives is our forgetfulness of what Jesus had to do to rescue our souls from eternal hell. We forget how bad we were. It's real easy to do that in the modern church these days because pastors are out to tell you how good you are. And so we get this idea that everybody's really good and it's just an anomaly when somebody does something bad and we forget that's not even true of me. It's not true of us. We're constantly battling sin, constantly battling the flesh, constantly dealing with temptation, and constantly aware, we should be at least, that often we give into it whether we're willing to admit it or not. We've hurt people. We've done dastardly things, some of which we think no one knows about and maybe no one except the Lord does. But the Lord had to forgive that. And he didn't do it without paying a price. You may think your sins aren't as bad as the sins of the person who sinned against you, but have you considered the fact that your sins were so criminal in the eyes of God that the only way he could save you is for Jesus Christ to be snuffed out, his life to be taken on a bloody cross? One sin is all it would have taken, and yet there were myriads and myriads of sins. And we still sin. And yet we find it difficult to be gracious with those who have sinned against us. Yes, I understand that there is a sense in which we are to forget the sins of the past. That's true. In the sense that we are not to mull over them so that they tempt us again. We are not to mull over them or rehearse them in our minds in such a way that debilitates us. But it's a case of remember not, but never forget. Don't bring these in your mind all the time so it debilitates or tempts you. On the other hand, never forget the miry pit from which God rescued your soul. I look back at the sins of my past and I say, Lord, don't ever let me forget that. Don't ever let me forget my sin. Make this grace to me. Even my past sins, Lord, turn them into the grace of a humbling influence in my life so that I won't become self-righteous and so that I won't be proud Remind me of how you have saved me. Recalling our own unworthiness will break up the fallow ground and make it easier for the Spirit to produce the fruit of love and forgiveness in our own hearts. And then freedom from bitterness will come easier. If you want to address bitterness in your heart, first confess it as sin. Second, recall how much God has forgiven you. And then third, remember his promise of future judgment. 
Remember his promise of future judgment. Now I want you to take you, I want to take you to a couple of texts because I would suspect that many of us have not considered this before. Romans chapter 2. I think it's actually 12. Romans 12. Beginning with verse 19. And now put yourself in the position. Someone has done something wicked against you. Someone has either harmed you physically, abused you in some way, or done some criminal act against you. How do you respond? How do you respond? Especially if there doesn't seem to be any justice in the world. If it seems like the institutions over this issue and that person are not doing their job, at least not in a way that seems sufficient to you, and maybe the person is getting off the hook altogether, what do you do? Well, I'll tell you what, most of us do. We just get bitter and we just dwell on that. And we think that it would be unjust not to treat them in some way that exacts a pound of flesh or to savor some revenge or to figure out some way to make them pay. And Paul addresses this issue of the heart when he wrote Romans 12, 19. He says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I know there have been an awful lot of interpretations of this passage, and most of them, frankly, don't match up to the reality of the history of the time or anything like that. What does it mean to heap burning coals on a person's head? Well, Paul is using warfare mentality here. And what he's saying is, this isn't about, you know, you've heard the illustration of, oh, you know, if your neighbor needs some coals, you put it in a little bucket and they put it on their head and they carry it home. You know, you're blessing them. Uh, you know, that always struck me as odd, you know, and, and come to find out there's no archaeological evidence or textual evidence that that ever happened with anybody, any people anywhere. So what is it talking about? Paul is saying, listen, you've got to do warfare here. You've got an enemy now, how does a Christian do battle against an enemy? Well, back then, if you were in a stronghold, in a castle, and your enemy was attacking you, they would try to come in through the gate. And your army or your men would stand over the gate, and they would pitch things down on the enemy. They would, they would you know, pitch over pitch, tar, uh, oil, and often they would just stoke up a bunch of coals. They'd burn a lot of wood and they'd carry it up there. When the enemy came down to break open the gate, they would throw fiery coals down on their enemy. This is warfare. You must engage in the warfare. Now, let me tell you what your weapons are. How do you address your enemy? Answer, love him. Love him. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. That's how you do warfare against your enemy in this life. And all the while, asking yourself, what's going to empower me to do that? 
This is what's going to empower you. The reminder of God's promise that someday he will repay. Vengeance is mine. We are not allowed to take vengeance. But we remember God's promise that in the the end, justice will be paid. Justice will be served. No unlawful deed, no sinful thought will go unpunished. Do you understand that? There is not a single sin in all of humanity that will go unpunished. None, nada. You're either a believer and all of that punishment is put on the Lord Jesus Christ or you're an unbeliever and all of that punishment will be put on you. But either way, either way, justice will be served. And for us as believers, this gives us great hope. And it is a rock under our feet. We can serve our enemies. We can do good to those who despitefully use us. We can act like Jesus acted when he was being wrongly accused and beaten and nailed to a cross. We can love them. We can serve them. And it may very well be that the good works that we do toward them may be grace to them that brings them to salvation. So that they will be praising God too on the day he visits us, Peter says. What is it that bitterness relishes? Bitterness relishes revenge. But God doesn't permit us to seek revenge. He commands instead that we love our enemies. On the other hand, it's helpful. It's helpful to remember that the prohibition against seeking revenge upon a wrongdoer does not mean that revenge will not be meted out. It will. God reserves that right for himself. And he will exercise that right on the day of judgment. God promises that he will settle accounts with the offenders so that we don't have to. I want to show you this in several texts. Look at with me at 2 Thessalonians 1. Some of these are going to be a little bit shocking if you've never thought about these things before. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica and he's writing to a persecuted church and they have suffered much at the hands of unbelievers and those who are persecuting them. And he writes this, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 8, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He will vindicate. He will bring justice to bear. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 7 and 8. Come on, don't give up. Turn with me. Luke 18, it'll help you stay awake. Luke 18, 7 and 8.
This is the Lord Jesus speaking, and he says, Will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly. When it comes, it will come decisively. It will come quickly. And it will be total. Look with me, Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18, verse 20. Here, the Apostle John is revealing that in the last days, in the final judgment upon the earth, one of the things that God intends to do is to take Babylon, the great harlot city of the world, and there's debate over what that people group is, perhaps Rome. And the Lord will exact judgment on them so that in a single day she is destroyed. Now, there is destruction. There is judgment. It is going to be horrific. It will make 9-11 here in New York look like child's play. And yet, how are we, as followers of the Lord Jesus, to respond to that? This is what John says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. This should be cause for rejoicing. God's judgment has come, and all the wrongs are being made right. All of the justice that was promised is being meted out. And then look at chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. After these things, John says, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? Because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her, with her immortality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. There will be a judgment. Vengeance is mine. Don't even think about taking from me my vengeance because it is a holy and just and glorious vengeance. John Piper writes, when God's patience has run its course, this and this age is over, and judgment comes on the enemies of God's people, the saints will not disapprove of God's justice. They will not cry out against him. On the contrary, the apostle John calls on them to rejoice and to shout hallelujah. This is a great promise, beloved. But someday God will right every wrong and God will settle every account. It is a promise bent on freeing us from an unforgiving, bitter, vengeful spirit. It's the promise reiterated in Romans 12, 19. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But until that time, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Pray for them. So what do we do? 
Again, Piper writes, this is where faith in God's promises of future grace comes in. God's promise says, yes, an outrage has been committed. Yes, it deserves to be severely punished. Yes, the per perpetrator has not yet experienced that punishment, but no, you are not the one to do the punishing. And you may not go on relishing personal retribution. Why? Because God will see to it that justice is done. God will repay. You cannot improve on his justice. His justice will be infinitely more thorough than any justice you could ever admit minister. And so be free to serve and to love and let God take care of whatever punishment needs to take place. And so what it boils down to, beloved, is this. If you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. If you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. In your heart of hearts, you're saying, Lord, I don't believe you're going to deal with this adequately. I think you need my help here. I'd like to give them a little taste of the judgment to come, please. And the Lord says, not a chance. That's my job. You could never do it thoroughly enough. You could never do it in proportion to what has been done against you. And more importantly, that sin wasn't primarily against you. It was against me. I will repay are you struggling with bitterness towards someone today? Then we should pray, Lord, I've been deeply hurt, but I trust that you've been careful to allow this measure of pain in my life for your glory and my future joy. And so I praise you. Help my unbelief. If you're struggling with bitterness against someone today, do you think about the hurt at night when you're alone with your own secret thoughts? Do you frequently feel the fire of bitterness burning in your spirit? Give it to God. Give it to God. The first thing is to confess it as sin. The second is to remember the pit that God rescued you from because of your sin. And thirdly, remember his promise that in the end, every wrong will be made right. So be free to love and to serve even your enemies. The best way to deal with bitterness is to confess it. Remember how much you've been forgiven. Recall God's promise to administer justice in every wrong. And my prayer is that we would be found faithful to live before the Lord as loving, gracious, and forgiving people, even as God is toward us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks now and we give you praise.